As we start there in Habakkuk chapter 1, you have a complaint made by the prophet, which is a similar complaint to complaints that we make, I think, uh, which is, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? There's this sense of frustration of praying and praying and praying and not seeing anything change. And he had that same feeling. I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. And so that is the complaint. It sounds like the day that we're living in. And it sounds like many of the complaints made throughout the Bible and the Psalms and um, in other places, and meaning that wickedness is all around, it's advancing, it's abounding, and uh, the lonely remnant righteous are surrounded by wickedness and surrounded by the wicked, and they are calling on God, and it doesn't seem like he's doing anything, it doesn't seem like he's answering. Uh, God's answer is not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. He basically said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to come in and deal with his justice problem that you've uh, brought to my attention. Um, and, of course, what that means is that a very wicked people are going to come in and they're going to be the instrument of God's justice upon the wicked uh, Jews. And I imagine Habakkuk felt much like David felt like when David was given three options for punishment. You know, which kind do you want? Uh, you choose. And he's like, neither. Uh, I don't want any of them. But the one I really don't want is to fall into the hands of men. That's the worst of all because men are utterly ruthless and your mercies are great. And so he got the three days of plague, but he didn't want man. Well, Habakkuk is told it's going to be men. Uh, the wicked Chaldeans are going to come in. And then his complaint changes to, well, how can you, how can you do that? I mean, how, how can you use someone who are, uh, to punish us who are more wicked than we are? And so then that it moves into to chapter 2, and you've got this wonderful, you know, the just shall live by faith, which Paul quotes in uh, Romans. And part of the context there is the just shall live by faith. We think in that in terms of I'm trusting in Christ, and the imputed righteousness of Jesus is transferred to my account by that faith, and that's how I'm made just before him, and that is all true and correct and the way it is applied in Romans. But there's also this application in Habakkuk, wherein it is, what kind of faith are we talking about here? The faith that trusts that God will do right and God will, is trustworthy and that you can put your, all your trust in Him in spite of what's coming. And uh, that in spite of the Chaldeans coming, you can still trust me. Um, then we get to that wonderful passage there in verse 14 of chapter 2, a wonderful promise, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <clears throat> in other places in Isaiah, it indicates that the glory of the Lord already fills the earth. Um, and it does in terms of creation and God's beauty and glory. Uh, it is all over the, the earth. Everyone can look up at the night sky for the most part and see glory. Um, but the problem is, is that it's not filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's what's missing. And this promise indicates that one day it will not just be that the 
the created world is a wonderful place and it's glorious and beautiful and and those who have eyes to see it can see it but it will be an abounding of knowledge in the earth and that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and uh, Paul adds the phrase in the face of Jesus Christ and so there is this wonderful future to look forward to that he's promising here then you come to chapter 3 and you've got a psalm and a prayer at the same time. And Habakkuk uh, starts in verse 2. I have heard the report about you and I fear. I think the report he's referring to is the report from God concerning the judgment that's going to be coming on the land through the Chaldeans. That that makes him tremble. Because as you look down um, later in verse 16, you can see this trembling that he has. And it's in connection with the coming of the Chaldeans. And so I think that's the fear he's referring to there. I, I've heard of the report about you, and I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And so uh, then he goes through this uh, you know, uh, survey of the attributes of God in poetic fashion of who God is and meditates on God, and then finishes it at verse 16 by saying, I heard, and my inward parts trembled, and the sounds of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And then there's this beautiful passage that we all all familiar with, though the frig tree should not blossom, and though there be no uh, fruit on the vine that the yield of the olive should fail and there be no fruit, you know, field, uh, produce in the field and so forth. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in Him. Well, so the point I would make here is, is that Habakkuk is not going to be spared the difficulties. You know, sometimes the righteous are completely sequestered away from the wicked in such a way that they don't have to go through it. Um, in Egypt, the land of Goshen was spared all the plagues. And it just fell over here and not there. But in a number of circumstances, the righteous are mingled in with the wicked who will be judged. And they experience real hardship in light of that. And Habakkuk, who is a righteous man and who is complaining about the wickedness, sensed that he was going to have to, this was going to be hard for him. Uh, There's no other reason for him to tremble. He didn't feel that he was going to be raptured away from this or something like that. He felt that he was perhaps going to have to endure it. And he was not looking forward to it at all. And perhaps you have that feeling, as I do here in this country. I look at this country and I see no hope whatsoever if you remove God from the equation and if revival is not given. But apart from that, I see no hope whatsoever. I see no hope in the Republican Party. I see no hope in a president. I see no hope in some political efforts uh, to get this country back on track. I see no hope in an immoral people somehow turning back to the Constitution and it being sufficient to govern us. There are a thousand termites chewing around the trunk of the tree that is America, and most of them are not even being addressed at all, and the ones that are, it's, it's, it's futile the way that they are being addressed. Because God is not part of the equation. He's not part of the solution. Repentance and pleading with God for forgiveness is not part of the platform 
of, of what we need to do. Um, and while you have one side attempting to completely demolish and destroy America and turning into communists, the other side oftentimes can do nothing more than say, we're the greatest nation that ever lived on the face of the earth. And throw out statements of pride and boasting. And that, that's not going to save this country. That's not going to avert the wrath of God. And so there's just this sense of it is hopeless. It's over. It, it is done. Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. This is a divided country, extremely, in a hostile way. You have two nations living within these geographic borders who pretty much hate each other and whose idea of govern, governing is mutually exclusive and incompatible. This does not work. It cannot work. The only hope is revival. Amen. That's it. And the church is the only one that's going to care about that. And it would appear that a small remnant within the church at that. But that's what, what does Habakkuk do with all this bad news? He asks for revival. And there in chapter 3 at the beginning, O oh Lord, revive your work. That's where we get that word, revive. Revive your work in the midst of the years. There's all kinds of ideas on what in the midst of the years means. Um, this is just my two cents to throw on the pile of change. But it, I think in redemptive history, you know, Christ had not come yet. The Messiah had not come. Much had been done, but much was left undone. That's in the sense that I have of what it means to be in the midst of the years. We're obviously further much down the road in redemptive history. Christ has come. And we are approaching the end. We're much nearer the end than we ever were before, of course. This goes without saying. But revive your work in the midst of the years. We can still pray this in a sense, even though it may not be the midst of the years, maybe the latter end of the years. But there are things yet to be undone. I don't see Habakkuk 2.14 having been fulfilled yet. The knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Um, I don't see the promise that I understand with respect to Romans 11 to Israel to graft them back in and bring them to faith again. I don't see that having happened. There's reasons to call on God that there is work yet to be done and a work to be revived. Essentially, Habakkuk is looking at the work of God. It's, he says, revive your work. What does that mean? Well, there's all these promises that were made, you know, the promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, actually made to the devil, that, you know, that a seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. There was the promise to uh, Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him, and we know that's through Christ. There was the promise to David that one of his sons would be seated on the throne forever and reign forever and ever. And as Habakkuk's looking at the demolishing of what remains of the Jewish nation, the north having already been obliterated, he's looking at how can that be, Lord? How, how can your work, how can you fulfill the promise of the work that you've pledged to do if this is all going to be wiped out? Revive your work in the midst of the years. And so I think we can plead uh, still with God to revive his work in the midst of the years, in the latter end of the years, and to plead with him to, in wrath, remember mercy. To, to say that means we acknowledge that he has wrath, number one. We don't, we're not embarrassed by that. And secondly, we know it's well-deserved. We know that if this country were incinerated tomorrow, 
or invaded by a foreign nation and we were all to become slaves, we would deserve it. Um, to plead for mercy is by the very definition of the terms to understand that I've got no, nothing to trade with, nothing to barter with. And I, I can't purchase your favors, Lord, on the basis of something I'm bringing to you in my hand. It's, it's like Augustus Toplady said, in my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So in wrath, remember mercy. Don't, don't wipe us out completely, Lord. Uh, be, be merciful, even as you are demonstrating your wrath um, upon justly deserving people. I'll uh, have a close in a word of prayer with the devotional. Father, we uh, plead with you. We can do no other. Uh, Lord, uh, beggars are not impressive people. In fact, they're contemptible people. Nobody likes a beggar. Um, they, they just mooch off of people, it seems, and, and freeload, and, and yet that's what we are. We're freeloaders. We're mooches. We're sponges that uh, sponge off your grace, but that's all we can do, Lord. We have no merit of our own. We have no, um, no reasons we can give as to why you shouldn't uh, bring great judgments we, we come with a plea in our mouth. We come with the open hand of a beggar. We come to ask you to have mercy in the midst of wrath and for you to revive your work amongst your people and your church. You have also promised that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, revive that work of building your church um, and bringing the gospel to all the reaches, far reaches of the earth, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Revive that work, Lord. Um, let it not fall to the ground. Let it not fail to come to pass. In wrath, remember mercy. We plead on the name of Jesus, who is our merit and who is our righteousness. In his name we pray. Amen.